Hey there, Web3 lovers. Welcome to the OXOX podcast. Jackie here, and I have another amazing guest just for you. Her name is Katie Tucci. She is a lover of vintage finds, passionate about blockchain legalities, and she managed to become a TikTok influencer going viral all while finishing law school and taking the bar exam. Her information can be found in the description box, so you can give her a follow on your favorite platform. Listen in to this conversation where we talk nostalgia, vintage finds, the way things once were, blockchain regulation, and the future of crypto. Okay, so hello, Katie. Um, Firstly, congratulations on completing law school. This is a huge accomplishment. So are you relieved to be done? You can't even imagine. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they always joke around about how you're going to be so excited to be done and everything, but it was a relief. Like I've gotten my graduate degree, I've got my undergraduate degree, but oh my God, finishing that felt really good. Yeah. So thank you. I uh, what it. are your next steps? Bar prep? I uh, took the bar already. Another horrific thing. I always thought like, you know, we'd all get there and they go surprise the bars, the friends you made along the way. This is the big lawyer secret. No one actually takes this test, but that they actually make you take the test, um, which is very disappointing. But I took it back in D.C. They should get my results in about two weeks now. So hopefully it'll turn out well. I'm mildly optimistic. And right now I'm just applying to jobs and still doing influencer stuff and seeing how it shakes out. But because basically they want you to be a bar attorney before they can hire you. I'm just hanging out. Yes. Um, I, uh, to be fair, my dad was a lawyer. My brother is a lawyer, but I also watched a lot of suits that show on, uh, <laughs> it, yeah. was, uh, it was FX or something like that. Yeah. Um, and that was a huge issue because Mike had not taken the bar. So. Yep, exactly. And I always thought like, it can't be that crazy. It is that crazy. So yeah, exactly. So where does the bar for D.C. count for? Is it also like Virginia, Maryland? It's just D.C. So it's you just get barred within your own state. And then you can have reciprocity with some states. There was a whole debacle this year of how many people could even sit for the D.C. bar because of COVID regulations. It was kind of a nightmare. But after a few years, you can basically go in and submit like a pro hoc VJ application. If you have an individual case in another state, you can submit. Be like, hey, I've been a lawyer for 10 years. I've practiced in New York a lot. I think I deserve to be barred in New York. Here's my credentials, yada, yada. So you can do all that, but mostly you just work within the place that you are. And you see there's some states have the universal bar bar examinations, so you can get reciprocity there more easily, but I haven't looked into it. I just studied for it. I did it. (laughs) And we'll see where it goes from there at this point. Yeah. That's so wild that it's just DC because it's, you know, in the state of California, the state of New York, that makes sense, right? Yeah. No, I forget that D.C. is its own little microcosm sometimes because I'm from rural Maine. I grew up on a farm out there and coming down to Washington where all the regulatory stuff and the huge amount of government, it was really crazy to be like, oh, my gosh, this is an entire universe unto itself. Yeah. And it still lacks like its own, you know, center representation and stuff. So it it is wild. It is really weird. I love that all the license plates say taxation without representation. They're still clearly very bitter about it. And they should be because it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I live in Maryland now, so we get into oh, decent, nice. like a, a decent yeah. amount, which is fun. Love, love the capital. Very fun. Um, so for everyone that's listening, I found Katie through TikTok because she has this very eclectic, badass page of some etiquette stuff. There's some like vintage floral decor. 
some that I would call some videos that are like slightly motivational or at least like a how-to guide for things like confidence. So please, you have to tell us about the multifaceted collection of videos on your TikTok and how all of this came to be while you were doing law school. It's a very strange universe out there, really, because I I started out in law school and I was like everyone in the pandemic at home with my cats and eventually finally decided to get on TikTok. And what I was in law school, I was also starting my own small business, doing an antique and vintage home decor resale business, sourcing stuff, you know, how to structure a small business, how to run it myself. And all of my friends were so sick of listening to me be like, look at this piece of porcelain Limoges. It's very important that it has the blue mark on the bottom, not the red. And they're like, please, like, we love you so much, but we cannot listen anymore about this. And I'm like, well, if they don't want to listen, maybe the internet would like it if I talked into the void there. And so it really was more of a personal just repository of the massive amounts of things that go through my brain every day. And I started off doing stuff like discussing antiques, discussing how I find the things I do. And at some point I went through a whole phase where I was polishing silver and telling stories about my life. And it just kind of evolved. And as time has progressed, I've kind of seen, I like going back and scrolling through my own page because it reminds me a lot of what I was doing with my life, where I was, what I was thinking about. And that's why, like, I also enjoy looking back at old photos, like on my Instagram or things like that, where I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember when we went to this, you know, we went out to dinner this time with my friends. It, it feels similar. Like, I remember where I was when, you know, I made this video off on a cuff, like some of my most like, like successful, quote unquote, whatever you measure by success videos or most seen videos have been things that like I made a funeral etiquette video the day I was going to a funeral. And I thought, well, I just feel like this is something I should talk about and something that's going through my head right now. That's kind of how it all got there. And I've always felt that, you know, there's a lot of talk about the tech side, the algorithm, how it functions, how to do this, how to be successful. A lot of places talk about how do you push your own media self and developing a brand and things like that. And while I've definitely tried to move in that direction with my own self, I still see that most things that people respond to the most are the stuff that I sit down and I just say, this is where I'm at. You know, these are the things I've observed. This is my experience as a woman. This is my experience as a young person, you know, things like that. And so that's why I think it's been a very eclectic mix is a very good way to put it is eclectic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also love that you named the store after your grandmother. Yeah. My grandmother, Hilvi Haken. And I'm a, I guess she was, she was born in, and. Finland. And then my father was born in the U.S. So I guess I'm second generation American there. But yeah, so most of my ancestors were all Finnish speaking, Eino and Baina, my uncles, great uncles, all living up on a farm in rural Maine. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it's also such an honor. I think like when you go back in time, you also are using vintage finds, things like that from that era. So it's such a cute, um, like way to honor the past. Yeah. And there's definitely something about you that's got this like old soul thing that comes across with your videos too. So yeah. thank very you. I, it's very kind of you to say. No, I, I I found that, and maybe it's just having been raised in the space that I was, and maybe it's part of being like a, a, a millennial. I guess I'd still qualify as a millennial. Like my mom always told me like, use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. And, you know, there's so many things. And the reason I started my business is because I would just go to thrift stores in the DC area and be so mortified at these people dropping off beautiful things that 
I was like, these should be appreciated by someone. And like, and there's a whole moral aspect of thrifting. And I understand that, but at the same time, the amount of material there, it's like, I'm not taking this from anyone who needs it. There is like seven other tea sets over there that are just as beautiful as the one I picked up. But for whatever reason, I'm like, this is something that, you know, if I found it online, I would love to order it, you know, stuff like that. And reusing it and feeling like we're, even though we're progressing a lot in society, I don't want to forget the fact that like, we have to take care of things throughout our lives. Yeah. I I think we've become more of a consumable society, just like a one and done use kind of thing. And I I even think about going to the grocery store now. I love how this is a crypto podcast. and This is what I'm getting on. (laughs) But this is my soapbox currently. (laughs) Like I remember when I was little, we would go to the grocery store, not even like that old. And you would go to the butcher counter and you would get a cut of meat and they would wrap it up in paper and then they would give it to you and you'd take it home. But now everything's this like prepackaged, all in plastic or in a styrofoam thing. You can't even recycle it. And it's just so wasteful. And I I keep noticing more and more things like that where I'm like, well, what did we do before? And like, well, we didn't have all this crap. There wasn't as much trash. There wasn't as much because we used things again and again. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of, oh, it's it's a strange overlap I've found between this impulse of reusing and reducing and recycling that I've also found that kind of goes along with technology as well. And that I you know, I get into spaces as a young professional and I'm like, why are we doing it this way? Why are we using these things? Like, it's like, oh, right, we're going to do all these things. You're going to organize this by hand, do this, this. I'm like, we should be doing what we can right now on this planet to make things easier for everybody, to free up your time to do the stuff you want to do and using the things we have in a beneficial way. So I'll just sit there as I remember being a paralegal. I'm like, why are you paying me this to go through and hand renumber this? when I could just write a program in like three hours and done, you know, that's the kind of, it it oddly gives a similar drive in me. I'm not sure if you get that identified feeling as well, but it's like the need to be doing the best with what we have. Yes. And and more cognizant of of continuing to use it. Yeah, exactly. Um, So the, I looked through the collection on the things on your site and I believe they're all currently sold out, but I totally wanted to buy like several of them. Um, I've recently become obsessed with the Gilded Age show. Have you watched that on HBO? I've watched a bit of it. It's really good. So beautiful. Yeah. Um, That's definitely a good one to binge for sure. Um, What is your favorite vintage find so far? Oh God, that is a very hard question. I, I've been a favorite vintage find. There's so many of them. I've started collecting all these wild things. Do I need to collect things? No. Do I? Yes. I found like this really great ceramic bird cage. I don't know why I love it so much. I don't even know what I'm going to do with it. I don't even think it fits a plant in it, but I just love it. And I've collected a bunch of botanical prints, beaded clothing, uh, Port Marion, uh, Flora Botanica stuff. I mean, there's one, this print called Finlandia that I love. So I, but I think one of my favorites would probably be, gosh, what would be my favorite? That is, that is genuinely difficult when I feel like I love all the things that I have and everything. But I, I think some of the most meaningful stuff for me is not the stuff that I've found in vintage stores. It's always been the stuff like my dad's doctoral degree, like, 
china that my grandparents picked up in russia and brought over like you know things like that because i will find things in thrift stores i'm like oh my gosh this is one of the pieces that was in my mom's wedding china set you know those are the things that i've found to be the most enjoyable and i know that's a not necessarily the most direct way of answering your question but it is my favorite no i i love it um so you mentioned briefly and we're going to switch gears and, and get a little back more <laughs> off topic um yeah. you worked as a paralegal while you were attending law school so while you were doing that was there an avenue or more legal questions starting to be asked about blockchain and crypto regulation so- so I, so I was a paralegal prior to law school, and that's kind of what prompted me to go to law school because I did some work in the white collar world, but also in like whistleblower law. And we would do some like pharmaceutical adjacent stuff, or we do some things that would require a lot of like intensive knowledge of sales data. And I was like, you know, like I always had an interest in technology. I've always found it fascinating. I was like, you know, this is, if we're already doing litigation over this in like 2015, this is going to become more and more a part of every attorney's career. It just whether you like it or not. And, you know, all these, I feel like there's a trend back in the mid 2010s of, you know, what time, you know, which, you know, which different professions are going to be completely outdated and completely replaced by AI. And we hadn't even developed sufficient AI yet to even be thinking about replacing a lot of these jobs. But that there was like this sort of similar to the Y2K fear, there was a fear of like, our jobs are all going to be gone. And so I was like, all right, well, I probably should learn a little bit about this first. And they went to law school. Your first year of law school, basically every student in the country takes the same things, contracts, federal civil procedure, torts, uh, property law, constitutional law. Uh, God, I'm forgetting the other ones. And things like that, very basic aspects of the law that you're like, they're canonical, you take them, you got to do it, done. And then your second year, there's things they say that you really should take, like evidence, which is on the bar. You know, you should take wills, trusts, and estates. It's on the bar. It's useful generally just to be, you know, an adult in the legal field. You can identify things you need to, but then you get the choice of like, what other things do you want to specialize in? And I really found myself after doing the white collar legal stuff as a paralegal, I loved doing stuff with finance, with business. And I didn't realize I went to American University at the Washington College of Law, which was absolutely fabulous could not speak more highly of them the professors just a wonderful place to learn and they have an incredible intellectual property program and i i was like you know i really i really like patents i like science i like technology and so i just started taking like you know emerging technology regulation cryptocurrency regulation and i was so lucky to have a school that had invested and brought on professors that were interested in these things and so i started doing bunch of business and finance, staying after class to talk to my professors about, you know, like, hey, like I just like I invested in Bitcoin. Um, how do I do my taxes? You know, you go to your tax professor and you're like, I'm just like a little curious about this. And even though they can't give you legal advice, you can at least talk to them and be like, hey, I know this professional or here's maybe what the law is trending towards. And I did write on, which is a whole process to get onto a journal in law school, which is a hazing process unto itself. But I wrote on and joined the administrative law review where I was able to do a lot more of the regulatory stuff. And while like, you know, we take on things from healthcare regulations to the Supreme Court shadow docket to like incredible stuff. But it was at the same time, I still found myself very drawn to being able to say like, well, what about this? What about this technological aspect? This is kind of like the last frontier of law right now, especially in the regulatory sphere. And that kind of idea of like, it's not really settled yet was so fascinating to me. 
it, it really, it is a wild west. We'll, we'll get into that in a second. So you do own crypto yourself though already? Yes, a very small amount, a minute amount. I'm okay. talking like under $200 of crypto. Okay. And it's, is it mainly like big stable coin, like Bitcoin, yeah. Ethereum? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it was mostly just like, I, you know, I go through and just doing the process of purchasing it. It was more for me to understand the underlying technology, see what it's like. Like I've minted um, NFTs for just to understand what it's like to get on and do that because I think it's important to realize and know how it works. Yeah. Have you had the pleasure of using um, Pancake Swap, connecting that to your wallet to buy a, a true... Oh my God, MetaMask and everything and all that. And I'm just like, I'm sitting there and it's like, if you ever lose this passcode, you're totally screwed. And I'm like, I know, man, I know. But, you know, and that's why I think I was glad that I've stuck very much because I have friends who completely divested from fiat currency entirely, which has been fascinating to watch. And are they're so far beyond any knowledge that I will ever have. But to sit there and be like, all right, I do think there's a lot of value and you yourself going on, even if you're on like a big exchange platform, you don't have to go into the nitty gritty of all of it, but like go on and buy a little bit, just a little bit, just try it. Yeah. I, uh, the first time I got my sister to buy in, I, I was like, well, how much money are you spending at Target? in like the crappy dollar section and that money's never going to come back to you. Like there's zero chance that it will. You might as well try something where there's a small chance it might. <laughs> yeah. It was similar to how, when I started doing like just like very basic stock investing when the whole GME phase exploded with everyone. And I was like, you know, I'm, I have like an esoteric understanding of the market and everything, but I need to actually go find a brokerage, see this, do it, fill out the numbers myself and like go through the process of it. And it, I mean, it was, it was the same thing of like, you know, if I'm, you know, I, I'm going to take money that I'm going to assume I'm going to net zero on it somehow anyway. So I might as well just try. It's the worst that's going to happen. I get nothing. Well, that's probably what's going to happen if I buy the dollar store stuff at Target anyway. So. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I'm sure you covered this in law school. What is your opinion about the fact that the Howey test, which is a case from 1946, is currently what they use to determine what is a security and what's not or a cryptocurrency? It's so funny. I, I have so many opinions about Howey, but it's also because Howey is just such an extrapolation of the legal structure in the United States in general of like, all right, here's this really old test. I mean, I in law school, when we first got there, there were cases from like 1603 in England that they would we would read, they're like two sentences long that you'd see in torts class. And you'd be like, okay, I get this underlying principle of like, you know, proximate cause and how, and some, there are some things that are very adaptable to modern day life. There are some things that are very not adaptable to modern day life. And I definitely think that, you know, torts, which are things like, you know, you, if you pull someone's chair out from underneath them and they break their arm, you you did something wrong, you broke their arm. Property though, and intellectual property and currency and finance are completely different because these are all ideas back when we did not have, no one could have imagined the, the depth of property rights, the expansiveness of what we could do within a complex financial system. And so with the development of Howie, I think that Howie worked, you know, as long as Howie could work, and I think that it's hard to force these sorts of securities into a Howie box. But at the same time, I'm not sure that we're in a space as a nation to be crafting enough complex legislation. And I'm not sure that, you know, any court is going to want to go out on a limb to be giving, you know, security defining 
cases in the way, because that was the other benefit of the early 1900s is the hubris. The amount of hubris these judges had, they're just like, this is what it is. And I'm like, it's kind of useless, but it's also kind of really useful because they nailed it down and we refined it over time. But there's an, and I understand this adverse reaction of the judicial system of saying like, hey, I don't want to be the one going out of the limb. I don't want to be the one who goes out there, maybe create something that works, but it gets shot down. Then we're like 10 years back and we don't have any regulation. So I think that the amount that like the SEC is doing right now and kind of stepping forward, the whole Kim Kardashian, uh, like just controversy and everything. I was very interested to see that it was not an FCC violation, that it was, you know, the SEC coming in and saying like, this is very firmly our space. That This was not just like, because a lot of times, you know, some of my friends who were not in the legal sphere, they were like, oh, well, like, I thought that that was just like, you know, when, when the Kardashians would get in trouble about just posting about uh, like um, migraine medicine, things like that, non-disclosure of the fact that you're, you know, being paid for an advertisement. And I was like, this is a, this is a very different situation when you're actually selling securities or like marketing for them and sourcing private capital and stuff like that. So I was, I was curious, I was happy to see that Gary Gensler kept stepped up and was like, here it is. I've delineated the circle. Like this is what we're going to be. And at least someone's taking ownership of it. Cause I was worried no one would. Right. I, I do think there is a little bit of a, uh, hypocrisy going on. Cause we have obviously Congress and members like just blatantly, you know, insider trading for things. And then you very have very clearly, very she, clearly, you know, not, not to defend her because, um, <laughs> I mean, she, it's so ridiculous. She's so far removed from the realm of financial advice. So for her to just post that was insane. I, and I, mean, you I know that she's us. like, she's like, it's funny. Cause I don't, sometimes I, I don't know about them because I do think they're absolutely, maybe just being an influencer. Like they're absolutely brilliant in so many things they do. And, you know, she's coming out with her private equity firm and things. And I was like, you know, I was like, this is a very interesting way. And like, I don't know how, how much she's involved with, you know, like private funding for skims. I have no idea. Maybe she does have this, but at the same time, you're right. Like this is not someone that you would be going to, to be getting advice on these sorts of things in the usual right. context. And I, I guess from that perspective, I can see how the SEC felt that that was just straight up predatory of, of people yeah. who didn't understand um, Floyd Mayweather is also in the mm-hmm. middle of the same lawsuit. So he will probably really? be the fine. She just settled before he did. I mean, I think she did the right thing. I mean, that's the thing too, is like, I've in all this and all the time that I've spent in laws, like there are very few people I'm afraid of, but the feds, I'm not afraid of them, but they, they are the few individuals. Cause you know, you have private companies calling, but like, I can't believe this. And you're like, you sit there and you're like, you're just trying to intimidate and shake down someone. But if the, if, a federal agency has taken the time to investigate and then speak with you about something. I mean, like I remember my boss saying like, I would not send my grandmother alone into a room to tell someone a cookie recipe. She would have a lawyer even then. And I'm like, all right, that does make sense. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering now if like maybe the private equity deal she's trying to start, they were just like, you can't have any pending things like this go on. Um, that's a very good point. They might've said that you can't have any pending litigation in order for them to keep going with it. And especially if they were trying to get, you know, decent investors, it's just a total turnoff to have you in the middle of something like that. Right. And with a big target on her back. <laughs> I don't envy her position. I will say that I do not envy her position. Right. Not in the slightest. But it was interesting PR. A very, it's definitely unlikely for what we're used to seeing her do. <laughs> no, exactly. 
Um, so are you following the Ripple versus the SEC case right now? I have not been following it anywhere near as closely as I should. I will heartily admit, so I in law school was obviously very into crypto. I assisted in the editorial process for the first legal textbook on cryptocurrency regulation. Fascinating process. But by the time I was finishing it in like spring 2022, it was like we were trying so hard, like, just add another chapter, just add another thing, like just add another next thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've gone through all the way from like the original white paper in 2008. And like, we're trying to force these last few things in. So I have been, I've been a horrible person who's just been like, I'm not going to keep up with it right now. So please like inform me to everything. And I apologize that I am definitely out of the loop in a lot of it. Well, I mean, absolutely forgiven for being in law school <laughs> in the middle of this, but uh, I I can't really tell in part because when you go on the internet, there's the people who are just the XRP stands and these people swear that this is the next world currency and they're just like, oh yeah, XRP wins another one for, you know, the hype, they're, yeah. they're uh, doing a great job of being a hype man. But I don't know if it's just a, a real view of what's actually going down or if the SEC is, you know, because the big debate really is like, is it a security or is it a commodity? Because Bitcoin yeah. and Ethereum are commodities. Yeah. But really, I think the threat is that you can send Ripple immediately. It's as fast as your debit card and yeah. Ethereum and Bitcoin aren't Then it's going to be a completely different beast. And I think that there's been a lot of discussion also about like, at what point are private companies with all, there's all these questions about, you know, buy now, pay later sorts of things. At what point are you becoming basically a securitization agent yourself? Like you're the, like, are you holding on to that debt? Like who is going to take care of that? How are you going to reduce your risk? Like at what point does the average consumer have a right to know how you structured this? And do you have the capital to even back this up if this all falls down? So I, I think that your point about, you know, how rapidly, that Ripple can be exchanged, it, it really pushes the idea of like, well, then what kind of financial institution are you? Like, what are you really doing for the marketplace right now? Yeah. And I think when you look at it from a global aspect, right, like the wiring of money doesn't make sense anymore when you can just send it immediately and not have to go through a seven day experience from bank to bank. And like the amount of just having to have like until I really got more into cryptocurrency and I ended up speaking at a conference in Austria on using uh, distributed ledger technology for nuclear security and kind of like really got down to the nuts and bolts of how you go through and use distributed ledgers and how they can be verified and the different methods of like verification and like all that stuff. And I was like, this is really secure. Why don't we do this? Like, it's like, why are we relying on banks to have every single one of our transactions that made sense back in the early 1900s that we would need a ledger system like that? But in just looking forward, I'm like, man, like this, it, it, it's one of those things that drives me crazy. I'm like, doesn't everyone see that this is pretty damn efficient and pretty useful for all of us? Like, right. I, know, I was like, I don't want to be a crazy, I don't, I feel, I don't feel like I'm stepping out of the limb on saying that. I, I, I mean, and that's, you know, you sit there in law school and I feel like I'm, Don Quixote tilting at windmills saying like, this could be something useful. And, you know, finally now I feel like it's gotten, now that it's gotten picked up. And that was another thing I talked to some of my friends in the private sector about is like, at what point are we finally going to have us people take the crypto world seriously? And it just drives me insane because like, you're going to, you're going to leave the space of people who are highly invested, brilliant, you know, 
technology that would be helping the lives of so many around the globe. And the fact that you're too hesitant to either regulate or give any statement or take it seriously or like, you know, it was just ridiculous because it allows bad actors to go through, continue acting bad, destroy the reputation of the community of individuals who are working so hard to make something for the entire world to use to stabilize a global economy in a very strange time and place. And you sit there and you're like, can you just please say something useful? Anything, anything, something useful. And I just, I just get frustrated. And I know that's probably the feeling of everybody, but like, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. The, the lack of clarity is probably the most difficult, especially because you don't know if you're going to step on a landmine and, you know, all of a sudden it just blows up. Um, But I think that's a kind of an issue of law, right? Like, do you feel that your classes in law school were evolving quickly enough with the current standards of technology to be able to give clarity? I mean, it's, that's a very good question. I think that the majority of the value in those classes was the establishment of here is what the regulatory sphere has done so far. Here is what we can reasonably ascertain they will likely do in the future. Or at least if we don't have a prediction on what they will do, like precisely, here are things that might pique their interest or places that they might be considering an emphasis in. I took a lot of classes on artificial intelligence and, you know, pretty expectedly, they are very focused on using it for defense. That's where they are. And, you know, the more that we have these kind of more hysterical and hysteria, like hysteria, not actually funny, but like the hysteria of news articles about like a self-driving car, you know, kills another person. And, you know, there's how many hundreds of thousands of deaths every year of like man and drunk driving deaths and things like that. And at what point, like we as a, in the legal sphere is like, all right, our job is to give the best prediction we can for our clients, the best counsel we can using the information that we have. And the information we have is not only legal precedent, but also a technological understanding of what's going on and how these things are functioning. And I think that they did a great job with the legal precedent and they're trying and getting better at doing the technological stuff. I took a class called programming for lawyers, like where we just went and learned Python and they're like, all right, let's sit down and teach you guys how to code. Because I think that, those sorts of things law schools should be leaning more heavily towards. And I appreciated some of the professors I had who were like, all right, like you're going to, you're going to actually sit down and learn how to do this because that is where the understanding for us to be able to form proper regulation comes from. And I just don't think there's enough communication within the tech and the legal sphere at this point. And there should be. One of my favorite like ethical questions right now is who the ownership belongs to when AI creates something. Oh my God, I can't believe you just said this. I wrote my comment for journal on this, on the issues in patentability, section 102, I believe it was. And the fact that right now, Dr. Stephen Thaler, have you followed that whole series? No. So it's this, he created this thing called Davos or Davos. I always mispronounce it. Really fascinating. Set up a Googler first, D-A-B-U-S. And he was the first one who tried to file in the United States a patent listing artificial intelligence as the creator of the patentable object. And so because in the United States, patent rights best in the individual who is the inventor. So inventorship isn't just like, oh, an esoteric idea. There has to be someone who had what is called like the spark of creativity. There has to be a moment at which you are like, I have created something. And you understand earlier on in time when it's like, all right, well, I thought about this half of the machine. I thought about this half of the machine. And then it's like, well, who really gets the rights to it? 
But now patents are kind of structured. You work for a company, you create something, they vest in you, you assign the rights to the company. But now we're getting to a point where Davos spit out things like one of them was like shapes of containers for keeping food warmer or cooler that was easier to be picked up by robots. And I was like, I was like, and he's like, I did not, he was like, I put in all this information. This is what the program spit out. And so you sit there and you're like, there is no legal mechanism whatsoever for something that if, if, it, if an invention is created, that there is not a natural person, a considered natural person who can vest the rights in it. They, they, we have nothing, truly nothing. And I, I, that has been my biggest tilting at windmills issue in, call, in law school. I was like, how is no one noticing this problem? This is a huge problem that's going on right now. And so he's filed all around the world. The international patent trade, patent and trade associations, Australia, Japan, China, everywhere he can. And I think he had some success in Australia, I think. But like, you know, everywhere, the first couple of times you're waiting in America to kind of see, and he's still appealing it and everything, but basically the courts have said, no, you can't do it. No, you can't do it. Not in the base of the existing regulations. And, you know, I, I don't know. No one's offered a solution, though. No one said what you should do. Well, it's getting interesting in the art world and the NFT world because there's a program right now called Midjourney. Have you seen this? Oh, I haven't. Midjourney. And you can, if you go on their Reddit page, they have a bunch of examples and you basically just type in like Edgar Allan Poe in a forest during an electrical storm or something like that. And the AI spits out whatever image is. Is this like the Dolly AI, the little one? I, I don't know what that is. That's a similar one where you, like, I think that it's so hysterical. I've seen them a lot on TikTok. They're like, book covers where, uh, romance book covers with two rocks on the cover. And it's like, it, the AI combines, like, all these images to give you four options or so. And you can put in some really wild stuff. But you see it and you're like, these are images that have literally never been seen before. Right. And then so, the, the question becomes, well, like, who, if someone sells it... Like who owns it, you know? It's, it's yeah, kind of no, and that's, and that's the other thing too with copyright and trademark and all those sorts of things because I have my MA in art business and I was a classically trained artist myself, which is a whole other universe of my life. But the way that, you know, you'll see some of these cases of like how close is too close of a copy? What counts as a copy? Is this a multiple? Is this something that's reproducible? Did you actually steal it? Can you steal it? You know, how did these rights get transferred? And we don't have those answers. Well, I think it'll be interesting the longer it goes on because somebody's going to have to take a stand. Yep, I agree. Or else it's because I don't think I have mild hope in the private sphere because I think that people in, who are millennials and Gen Z just have such a different understanding of technology, its importance and how much we're going to use it throughout our lives. Because I just and I think that we're just going to have to have some sort of major shift in our understanding of all of it because it's going to be like, there's only so long we can cling on to Howie and have it be something that's functional. There's going to have to be a time where we sit down collectively as a society and maybe it's after things have developed enough, people have realized, you know, this is the kind of, you know, and it's strange because a lot of these instances go back to these weird, like ephemeral feelings of like, I just feel like it's wrong that you don't have any compensation for this, which is such a strange way to think of like, Oh, the most logical things that you can do. But at the same time, there is this weird underlying moral motivation of like, that just seems like a ripoff to consumers. That just feels incorrect. That feels untrustworthy. And that's what 
at least I found, ended up driving a lot of the stuff when I've watched over the past, like any legal research I've done in the early 1900s of like, that's just not right that the consumer gets screwed like this. And hopefully we develop sorts of similar perspectives as we move forward using crypto and just AI and technology in general. Yeah, I see the argument for people saying it it might not be fair for like just blanket, um, particularly in like criminal law, right? Like, you know, somebody just gets a, a punishment, like this is it. And, but it, what it led to is the other side of like, well, this guy did something horrific and he got a way lighter punishment than someone else who didn't do something as bad. Yeah. And I think that that we're still grappling so much in the tech sphere. Like you remember those commercials, you wouldn't download a car, you wouldn't. And like the idea of like, if I copy my DVD, I'm going to be in federal prison for 20 years, you know, all these things. And there are instances where you see people who are online doing stuff that you know, is pretty in the morally gray area, or even if it is clearly in the morally bad area, quote unquote, huge scare quotes, is not as bad as killing someone. Or there are, you know, multinational companies, they're actively contributing to the destruction of our global global ecosystem without recourse. And that's kind of like, I think that we also have to adjust how we view punishment, quote unquote, retributive justice, all that, because part of moving forward in technology is giving the ability for society to better itself. End of story. And we can't just keep applying all these ridiculous notions of like, you can just lock someone up for 30 years and call it a day. It's like, no, that's not, that's not what's going to actually help anybody right now. Yeah. Agreed. So without being political, uh, what is your opinion on the fact that very old case law or something like the constitution is used as precedent for regulation or ruling on new things that didn't exist even like 50 years ago or a hundred years after. So something like the first amendment definitely never anticipated the Facebook share button. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I think that how we obviously with crypto. Yeah. I I think that there's another perspective I gained in law school was kind of the apolitization of things like that, which I very much appreciated and the idea that there are instances where I do think that an adaptable constitution and referring back to it has kind of become the structure of a lot of our legal systems. Precedent has become something we rely on in the legal sphere. And my issue is much more so our inability to create new precedent than it is, you know, relying on. Because I think there are definitely, you know, free speech, pretty important. I think it's pretty great, personally. But at the same time, you're right. We haven't anticipated the Facebook share button. We haven't anticipated to the point where free speech becomes something that can directly incite violence in a way that we've never been able to see disseminating information at rates that just were incomprehensible. And I think that a thoughtful understanding of what those original principles mean to us as a nation, how they interact with the legal structure as it exists right now, because I do think that And this may be a complete, this is one thing that I definitely think is a distinction between Gen Z and millennials that I have found pretty strongly, especially in the most recent things I've posted on TikTok about, you know, being a woman in the workplace. There's the idea of how do you take the current system, improve it, make it better, deal with what you have versus like break the system, screw everything, do something new. I don't know if either of those is the right way to go about it. I think both of them are right sometimes. I think both of them are wrong sometimes, but there's definitely at least in me, a feeling of, I just want to be able to, for all of us to turn like 35, 40 and have some sort of market capital 
to be able to, you know, do something, to be higher up in our careers. We start lobbying in a way of like, this is what I have the time and energy to provide for. And this is what I think regulation should be doing. But like, it's very frustrating also at the same time to say like, you guys are upholding the system. I mean, why are you working with these individuals? And it's like, the only way for some things to get better, even if it's not perfect, is to work with systems that you may not agree with, that you may find incredibly problematic, that you may find are hurtful to others. But at the same time, for us to get over that hump, I do feel like we have to do something. It's better than doing nothing. And it's better than, you know, going too quickly to the burn it all down option. Because there are definitely times where I'm like, yeah, let's burn it all down. But at the same time, to get there, we have to take these steps. And so I, I do always want to say that it's important to listen to the perspectives of everyone who is, whether you're an originalist, whether you think that, you know, all of it's ridiculous, there's, there's good and valid points all over the place. And we have not done a very good job of acting on any of them. Yeah, the keyboard warrior aspect of of social media and life and like, oh, let's just find this one thing this person did. We don't like it. But then they don't focus on what you're talking about, right? Like the entirety of the system. And that's so wild to me when you sit there and you read through it and you're like, you're not, you got to go back 10, 20, 30, 40 years to fix it started. Yeah. And the extent to which, like, you know, it seems very easy. All of this seems very easy. Even as a student, you sit there and like, why don't we just write regulation like this? And you're like, why don't we just do this? You know, it seems very easy in any sort of concept, but really getting in there and doing the hard work of like, how do you grassroots organize in rural areas to say like, you know, this is something that if we have the regulations in our state for cryptocurrency, this could be a great space for new companies to come in, other jobs. I know it seems very foreign to you. Here's how it could help you. Those are the sorts of things that we need to be focusing on to make sure that we're making progress. But those are really hard. Those are really hard to do. And it's very easy to sit there and call me an idiot on TikTok, which is everyone's favorite thing. But no, it's not. I actually have lots of people who are very kind. I don't need to generalize. (laughs) It's very hard to focus on the very nice people when you have the very mean people. I I, I will completely admit I have very lovely individuals. And maybe it's just because my my platform is like 90% female, according to my TikTok statistics. But I found that, you know, there are a lot of people who are willing to listen. There are a ton of people who are appreciative. And it's just that like 10 to 5 to 10% of jerks. But you sit there and you're like, you are actively making things worse. Can you stop? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. My favorite yeah. is reading through and usually at like 2.30 in the morning, I can't sleep. That comment thread between like the two or three people arguing with each other. And I'm like on someone else's video, like they don't know the oh, person yeah. of the video. They don't know each other. And they're in a full on like 227 comment war. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And that's why, like, I, there's sometimes where I'll just, like, give a snarky response to someone who's being a jerk, just because I'm, like, I'm feeling like an asshole today, you know? Am I allowed to swear on this? Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's thank you. Go for God. it. <laughs> thank God. <laughs> I, I do very hard. I try very hard on TikTok not to swear a lot, but I am naturally on the more profane side. Um, But, yeah, so there's sometimes where I'm, like, I don't even need to tell this person to go fuck themselves because I'm going to have 17 others who are, like, you're disgusting. Stop it. There's no, there's no need. And I mean, if everyone has a bad day, I get it. Everyone has a bad day, but on the internet, I feel like there's like, you were talking earlier about like all ripple stands, all the stuff that happened with GME, all the people who like, there's a new sort of perspective that I think emerged 
from these like fanboy in the tech space. Like my professors were fascinated by this stuff. And I was like, is this a fascination because you're not as you know connected to internet culture? Is this really a shift in culture? Is this like a social phenomenon? Or do you think it's gonna have some sort of correlation to like the actuality of the market? I don't know. They were all just super into it. And I was just sitting there like, I'm gonna buy my one stock of GME. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, the crypto bro phenomenon is just, it's very special. I uh, was a longtime follower of Wall Street Bets, like way before oh, yeah. the GM. Oh, yeah. They're fascinating. They're hysterical. They were hilarious. Like I, it, it totally got ruined during the GME thing. It's like a terrible subreddit now. But before, I mean, it was basically like, reading the interactions of the wolf of wall street like if that oh yeah life, that's what that was and i found that so entertaining it but- is wildly entertaining and i mean that's the thing is I, I there are these still these again wild wild west areas where you're sitting there and there's definitely still spaces online and i want to hunt them down more of like a, when we're still kind of growing those online nascent communities of these things and the early crypto bro fascinating the like, you know, proto crypto bro right now is like, all right, that's cool and everything. And I mean, but I mean, it's good though at the same time because this is stuff that should be getting more wide exposure. Like, I don't think that this is something we should gatekeep. Like, there are definitely smaller communities that I'm like, oh, this is really fun. I want to be a part of this. But at the same time, I'm like, I want kids to be like, hey, mom, what's Bitcoin? Hey, mom, like, what's an NFT? Like, hey, do we have a class in school? Can my teacher like, you know, kids, kids having an understanding and a curiosity about it. And if it takes just like people doing a bunch of crazy shit online for that to become news enough to break into that sphere to arouse that curiosity. Go for it, please go for it. Yeah. It's absolutely a new area of uh, income for people as well. Yeah. Like a work from home area, you know, a new um, economy in itself, which is crazy yeah. that crypto created its own economy before marijuana became legal. Like <laughs> I I will never understand. I will never understand. I really don't. But it's like, I mean, some of the most, like one of my closest friends, he is a, the most knowledgeable person I've ever met on crypto. He's completely divested from fiat currency and he lives out in rural Maine. And it's, you know, the most equalizing thing I've ever seen of like, these. this is the way, like I, I would dream of being able to go live in a space where I could afford five acres and a house and things like that. And like, I'm looking at remote work jobs and I'm like, oh my gosh, I could finally do that and to revitalize like i could go back to a local community which is where i want to be and you know open up a small antique. i could afford to have a physical small antique store and you know afford to be doing these sorts of things i I think that's just so vital to like get ourselves out of these like because city spaces are great they're amazing for young people they mean you don't have to have a car but like there are so many areas in america and around the world where you can go and move yourself and be reinvesting in areas and smaller economies and recycle all this money in a space and crypto and work from home and remote work options just generally and technology period is so, so important to being able to do that. Yeah. And getting back to a different way of life, that's kind of, you know, like what you're in agreement with, what I'm in agreement with, of like, grow your own food, like grow some of your own food. And I mean, it's, you know, it used to be a sort of thing, like there's always the, because I grew up in a space where we grew some of our own food. And it's like, you know, you romanticize that my mom still heats her home with wood and we carry on four cords of wood by hand every year. There's the romantic side, but then there's the side of like, I don't think that anyone, no matter what your political perspective is, does not want to have a safe life, healthy children and family members, 
the ability to go on a vacation and bring your kids somewhere, the ability to not have to worry about them going to school because you have a good school system that you can rely on. You want to be able to allow yourself to say, I don't have to work this weekend. I can go and pursue my interest. I can do something to get back to my community. I don't have to have, you know, drones landing my 24 seven Amazon packages. I can wait a little while because I have sustained, sustained myself and have things that I care about. Like, you don't have to have a yacht, but you could, if you wanted to have a sailboat and that's your passion, you could do it. You know, that's, I don't think that anyone would disagree that those are things we should work towards as a society to allow people to have very basic levels of living, like very yes. basic. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know how the city life got so glamorized to the point that it turned everyone into city people, but having I mean, it would be nice. It's it's hard because like I do enjoy city life, but I think that it was honestly the only way to have a life outside of the country. If I didn't leave Maine, I would never have been able to do any of the things I did. Never. And there are many people I knew in high school who never left the county, let alone the state. There are plenty of people back home who've never been on an airplane. And I think that, that there's people in DC who are like, oh, I could never, I don't understand why these people, how are they, you know, watching this news channel? How are they voting for this person? It's like you don't understand the fundamental difference in life in you know in rural areas in america rural areas of the world period versus suburban areas city areas and technology is the first and final like equalizer the ability for kids like for if i could have like looked through pictures of the louvre when i was like 14 the only way for me to go to a museum would be my mom taking me down to new york city to go to the met like you know, now these days you can, you have access to that. And I, I really think that it would be, it would have been life-changing for me as a young person to have access to arts, to community, to, to online conversations. And I, and I'm so happy it's available to people these days. Really am. So important. And not even just pictures, but you can put on a VR headset. Yeah. And you can really like literally experience it. I love my Oculus, by the way. I love it. Thanks so much. <laughs> we have one too. It's very fun. <laughs> I did not want it to be as fun as it is, but now I play Beat Saber like crazy. And I'm like, this is too much fun. It's like the DDR kid in me has finally found its like next level of fun. <laughs> um, okay. So you briefly mentioned the, the TikTok video about the, um, how to be taken seriously in the workplace. So this was the video that I originally saw and it immediately made me send you an email to ask if you wanted to be on this podcast because you speak about a lot of seemingly small things that add up to a very big outcome of overall confidence. Things like uh, making everything a declarative statement, like have a seat. And even though you are on the shorter side, like myself, I am 5'3", um, you make sure that your chair is high enough so that you're at an eye level with the people at the table. So the caption on your video says that there's too many stories you could tell that lead you to learning everything that you learned. Yeah. But since we're here, do you want to share one? Oh man, there are so many. And I, I it's, it's hard because a lot of them, it's like, I can't legally share them because they were part of my time as a paralegal, but they were, you know, I count myself incredibly lucky to have had a lot of good mentors and a lot of very good bosses and coworkers who I can go to. Like, I remember, you know, I had biggest case of my career, international importance. Absolutely. Like you couldn't imagine a more important thing. And I literally was sitting there and lead counsel for um, the opposing party calls me honey and sweetheart. And he's like, you know, on the news every other day, discussing all these things like being, and I was sitting there and I'm like, I just did three days of research 
compiled everything you needed and you're giving me like an overly long arm touch calling me honey and sweetheart and my boss just looks at me her name is katie her name's katie and he was another older white man who took no shit and anytime i would say like i'm not comfortable he would be like tell me exactly who exactly why and you will never have to deal with that again ever and so watching and observing his behavior, the behavior of other attorneys that I worked with, even if I was standing there, I remember standing in the front office one time and another person we had worked with was just like in town because we had had like a, he was getting deposed by the feds and we're sitting there and he's like, oh, and, and he had like two daughters who were teenagers and I'm like 24, 25 at this point. So I think this is just like a, a, a dad, a normal dad. And he's like, oh, well, like, what would you suggest for like going out to dinner? You know, what if I come back with my kid? Yeah. And I was like giving him suggestions and he's like, Oh, so later, do you want to meet up with me there? And I'm sitting there thinking like, I'm just, the, this person that I've just spent days with preparing has been treating me as a professional and just talking to me as a normal individual. And then I like, I can feel like the color drain from my face. And all of a sudden from behind me, I hear one of my other attorneys go like, oh, hey, Katie, can you grab those papers I just printed off the, um, off the printer? He had been listening and waiting because he knew that this guy was going to potentially try something like that. And by the time I even got back to my desk, the dude had been ushered out, given a firm handshake and said, great, we'll see you next time. And, you know, it's it's a very strange experience. And, and I think that as I've gotten older in the workplace, it's become easier. And I think the workplace has become a much better space, honestly, even, even just since I started. But like, because I, I would always count myself lucky to have, quote, good bosses. And now as time's gone on, I feel like, more and more people have realized this is a necessity in the workplace. This is not just a nice thing to have, but I still really, really run into trouble in private spaces, like restaurants, bars, private events. Um, anytime you have to go to cocktail networking, things like that. Those are spaces where I still have to very, very aggressively present myself as a woman and very much think about exactly what I'm going to say, when I'm going to say it, how I'm going to say it. Because while, as you can see, like a lot of people come to my TikTok, like, oh, I bet you're fun at parties. I bet you're horrible in the workplace. This girl has no idea what she's even talking about. And I'm like, all right, whatever. Go ahead and insult me. That's fine. In the workplace, as I've had a conversation with you, it's not as if I come out like a raging bitch every second of the day. No. That's not that's not what these tips are for. But when I go out to a bar, if I'm trying to read my book and have a salad and sit there with my favorite bartenders at my favorite place, and you come up and start trying to tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about, I am going to be a raging bitch. And then you're probably going to pay for my drink too, because I'm just not, I'm not having it today. And those are the spaces where, honestly, much more so than in the workplace, the things that I've learned in the legal industry and just in life in general have been so invaluable, so invaluable. I, I was a bartender for quite a while and I can tell you the saddest realization of my 20s and in that interaction with just people in general is realizing that it didn't matter how old men were, they were the same. Like yeah. they were permanently 22 and they just never got out of the idea that they look at women the way that they did when they're, you know, 22 even some of them becoming a dad, like your realization of like, wow, I thought once you had kids and girls. Once you had two daughters, two teenage daughters, I would have thought it, it, but at the same time, it's like, 
And, I, and it's very hard because I never want to be in a space where I'm condemning men at large. I think that there are incredible men. I think there are incredible women. I think there are incredible people of any gender, no gender, whatever gender. does not matter. But a lot of my experiences in the corporate space in Washington, D.C., is white, middle-aged, cisgendered men. And they're pretty trash sometimes. Yeah. And there are some that are really amazing that I absolutely adore. But even the ones who I adore... There are moments where I'm like, what are you saying? What are you doing? You can't do that. <laughs> That's not okay. And, you know, I, I can't imagine the things you've seen as a bartender. Because I, one of my favorite things to do is I don't answer emails like or things like that at home anymore. I try to go to like a bar somewhere just so I can, you know, make any sort of connections, spend time doing things that like, you know, it's really a, like a more of a social networking space for me. And I have my favorite bar, my favorite place, my favorite bartenders, and they know who's a weirdo, who's going to harass me. And the work that they do behind the scenes, Machiavellian, all the stuff that's happening, unbelievable. Just so I can sit there and have a conversation with other young women who come to a similar space to network. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny because when I watch your video, I, I, I haven't bartended in a while, but like it all came back to me of like all of the ways that you, you basically have to take on the persona of one of them of, oh, yeah. of, and, and, you know, not smile. Like you're talking about, like you don't smile, you don't, you just become them and treat them the way that they're acting. Yeah. Not in like a, a rude way at all. No, you're just not rude either. No, you just, but I think that that's the thing too, is breaking down the socialization that for so long, I always felt like I'm being a jerk and saying this, I'm being rude and doing this. But then I realized I'm like, I will literally just observe and do the same thing. And somehow I was like, it made me feel so uncomfortable for so long. I was so scared to do it, but it, it really was like, once I realized it's not being rude, not putting things, like not putting an exclamation point in my emails has been like my life. I'm like, I'm going to just not do it. I'm going to try really hard not to do it. And for so long, I was like, oh, my gosh, everyone's going to think I'm rude. Maybe they're going to think I'm replying to these emails, like, really brusquely or putting a negative perception. And I was like, oh, wait, people still talk to me. <laughs> Things are still going okay, you know. <laughs> so did you find, especially, like, on TikTok, that men or women had the hardest time, like, accepting that kind of information? Definitely men. But I also think it depends on the algorithm because I'm not sure. My audience is so vastly female. So I don't think I have a good male representation slice. And I can't tell whether mine gets video, my video gets posted to people who are more likely to engage with it, which I think is possible, which is a lot of times negative. So I do have, I would say like, if all the female comments, maybe like 10% to 15% are negative, maybe as high as 20%, but just, in, and this is all just like random arbitrary me scrolling through my comments, absolutely no data to back this up. But this is just my internal sense of it. And I would say more like 25 to as high as like 35 or 40% of male comments would be negative. And, you know, at first, when I first started TikTok, I would get, I had the first video that went viral and I was like, I was so incised. I was like, I can't believe people are saying these things about me. They don't know anything about my life. Like I wanted to film a response to every single negative comment. Like you have no idea how I learned these things. You have nothing about me. And then I was just like, I remember what my mom said like way back when I was like 12 and I was super nervous to wear this one outfit school. And I was like, what are people going to think about it? Like what? And she looks at me and she goes, Katie, no one cares. They're all too busy worrying about what they're wearing. And when I started realizing, Oh, these people are writing a comment and they're not going through the rest of their day thinking about, Oh, was she going to respond? They're not like opening their phone waiting avidly for, you know, 
they like they would love a response, but at the same time, it takes up zero space in their brain, which is exactly how much space is to take up in my brain as well. Yes. Yes. That is a a wonderful way that everyone should think about it. It's hard to be a content creator though. Because you is. put yourself out there, you took time to make the video, you didn't want to make an ass out of yourself, you thought that you were providing value of some type, whether it was humor or advice, yeah. something. And it, it sucks to have somebody thoughtlessly take three seconds, you know, after they and watched it, be like, I can't believe I just wasted three minutes of my life. <laughs> like, And you're like... And at this point, I'm like, good, keep wasting them, baby. Keep doing it. Just, you know, take your time, up my engagement rate, go ahead. Because you know what? If the meanest person in the world to me is me, you can't go any worse than this shit. Trust me on it. Like <laughs> anything that you've said to yourself, I've already analyzed this six ways from Sunday and thought about my vocal fry 17 hours longer than you ever will. So. <laughs> Um, so one of the big things that you mentioned was that your law professors would say, stop waffling yep. and, you know, statements like, well, I probably should, or like maybe and blah, blah, blah. And it, because it makes you sound less sure of yourself. And I can imagine that being a lawyer leaves no room yeah. anyway, but as a woman, don't you find it bizarre that that is what it took for us to seem nicer is for yeah. us to waffle. It's for us to be through and to be in a space where like whatever your opinion is, if it's different, mine has to align to yours. There has to be the space for, for men to be right, for them to be in charge. And there's a whole other nuance and illusion that I think that women for generations have mastered this. It's the whole idea from like my big fat Greek wedding of like the man is the head of the household, but the woman is the neck and the neck turns the head whatever way she wants. And it's like how we have adapted to kind of just like inceptioning our ideas and thoughts into these corporate spaces. Because I, the thing that drove me to learn all this shit to begin with is the fact that I would sit there, I would know I'm right. I would know it. I would be like, this is the, I looked at it, this is right. No one would listen to me. And sometimes they would listen to someone else and they'd screw up and I'd be like, well, I told you, what did I say? And finally I was like, it's not, because for so long, I felt as if it, there must be something wrong with the content of my assertions. There must be something that I'm saying that I'm that there's something wrong about it. That's why people aren't listening to me. I must be incorrect in some way. And the realization that it was not anything to do with the content of my assertions, it was just the fact that no one was listening to them, was a huge internal, like just emotional boost to me. Because I was like, for years, you sit there and you feel like, like, I must be stupid. I must be wrong. I must, there must be something. What is it about me? Because you think to yourself, you're like, well, I value my ideas. And your assumption, the underlying assumption is that other people value them as well. But the underlying assumption is not necessarily correct. And so how to go about making them be valued was my entire exercise in all of this. Because I think that I get a lot of comments from really wonderful people saying, I'm, I'm shy, I'm nervous. I was so shy and nervous for so long. I didn't even want to go to a grocery store by myself until I was like 16. Couldn't do it. Terrified. Absolutely terrified. And then finally, I was like, well, I've got to find a way to systematically overcome these things. Because clearly just like me living my life is not doing it. It's not helping. I need to be able to observe and see what I can do to change these parts of me and not in a bad way, not in a way that it's like, you know, becoming more this, becoming more that, because like, I'm still me, but how I get that self out there to be taken seriously and to be heard by others 
is an ongoing learning process. And I've got it down in academia and I kind of got it down in the workplace, but in the regular public sphere of life, I definitely don't know yet how to go and sit at a bar. And I will have long, complex conversations and expect a business card at the end. And instead someone goes in for a kiss and says, do you want to go back to my place? And I'm just disgusted because I'm like, how many, how much information, and no matter how I've expressed myself in that way, and maybe it's just the context of the situation that you're never going to be able to overcome some aspects of social interaction with the assumption being, you know, you're there as an object, but you know, it's, it's hard. And it's a, and it's something that I really wish and I hope, and I think that we as a generation are going to change because I don't see that kind of behavior in Gen Z and I don't see that kind of behavior in millennials either. I, I agree. I have nothing but basically millennial and younger coworkers within the crypto space and everyone is so incredibly respectful of me and treats me like an equal and I never have to worry. Like nobody has ever said anything inappropriate. If anything, I'm the comedian saying inappropriate things. Right. And they're not. <laughs> yeah. Um, they might also be a little afraid of me, but that's fine too. But that's a good thing. They should be <laughs> just a little bit of fear, just a hint, just a hint of fear. A tiny bit, <laughs> a little ruling fear. Um, they, in your video, you also say, and, and you are as in your video states, um, that you are blonde. Do you think that also being blonde is something that kind of adds to this? I definitely, I mean, like, I think a lot of, it's more so just general idea of being very femme presenting. Like I've always naturally like, it's so funny. I, I never, when I was younger, I thought I would grow up to be like a stoic 45 year old German man, like six to four, like smoking their cigarettes, like talking about Wittgenstein. And, you know, that was always my like, oh, I'm going to be this when I grow up. I want to be like an archaeologist or a professor. But in my just daily life of how I live in the body that I was born in, which is, you know, we all get one. This is how I like to drape mine and whatever clothes that I think are fun and cool. It ends up being very feminine presenting. And I do think that if that there are times where like I've been told numerous occasions, don't wear, don't ever wear pants, always be very feminine. Don't ever wear a skirt, always be very masculine. You know, you can get every perspective of like, don't do your makeup before you get this job. Don't wear glasses. Make sure your makeup's done before you try and go get this job. Every single perspective of like, no matter what way I end up doing my flesh prison for the day, it's going to be somehow reflective of how people perceive me. I need to get my roots dyed so badly right now. I'm so glad that people will not be able to see them because they are so bad. But at the same time, like, you know, I think about that where I'm like, oh my gosh, should I, are people going to say anything when I film? Does this feel self-expressive? Are people going to take me, you know, less seriously? Like one person was like, I can see your roots. It seems like your hair is pretty much a little bit darker naturally. Do you ever think about going natural? Maybe people will actually start taking you seriously if you did that. And I'm like, I am a natural blonde. You don't want to know how much I dye my brows. They don't exist. Otherwise, like, please, sir, like, let me just try to get through with whatever I've got, which is this five foot two stumpy body that does what it does. And this is how I like to live in it. And sometimes I think the way I present myself is a benefit. And sometimes I think it's, it's pretty harmful. But that depends on the day. I do think that regardless of gender, money is always going to be the great equalizer, though. And, yep. <laughs> you know, it, you either have enough money to be like, well, fuck you. I don't need to talk to you right now. Yep. You know, you can buy the or whole you know. bar, every seat at the bar and tell the bartender, you know, here's 600 bucks for the night. Keep yep. these four seats around me clear. And they will. Yep. So I, I mean, that's, I that's think, 
that uh, women for the longest time, you know, even up until maybe like my mom, like the millennials mother generation, like those were kind of the first women that it wasn't traditional to just stay at home. Like they could go out and get a job and it was kind of accepted, but we've been fighting still for, you know, the 72 cents to a dollar that we paid, but crypto blockchain that doesn't care what gender, color, race, anything. No, I agree. I think that that's, and I haven't delved into it on TikTok because I, I don't know if three minutes is ever enough to get enough of my opinions about this out, but like, I have so many issues with the idea of classism in America. I think it's profoundly detrimental. And you're right, like financial access, financial ability. I grew up pretty, pretty poor. Like I would say, I mean, like lower middle class, but my mom was raised in an upper class environment. And I, she taught me all of the little niche things that you do of like how to set a table. These are the kinds of cities that people vacation in. So when you go to a cocktail party, you know how to pronounce that, you know how to pronounce like Vale and Aspen are located at what, I mean, like just very simple things that you're like to enter these spaces and to fit in with wealth was a absolutely life-changing skill that I learned. And I think that, you know, having access to money, part of having access is knowing how to look like you have access to money. You have to be able to like I, most of my clothes are either rented through Rent the Runway or I go to Goodwill or I like knit something funky for myself. Like, and, but my mom was always like, you know, you maintain your clothes in good condition. Here's how to wash them properly. Here's how to press them properly. You know, here are the small ways to give yourself the appearance of having access to these inner circles where people assume naturally that you have these sorts of knowledge. And because you have this access to wealth and then you have, then you do have access to it. Then all of a sudden you find yourself getting better job opportunities, you know, meeting people with more credentials who are willing to offer you seed capital to do things. I mean, things that you just wouldn't even realize that they're, that you're processing as someone, they're like, Oh, I recognize you as another wealthy individual scare quotes around all that. And that, that perspective of being able to navigate a very class-based system in America has been so, so useful. And I, I don't think that we talk about it enough because of the idea of American exceptionalism and the idea of American equality, because it's maybe there legally, it doesn't exist in reality. It just is not. I I love that. It's also now that that class system is uh, it's evolving into more like digital based assets too. So then, you know, you can't see how much Bitcoin somebody has, or if they have a board ape or something like that. Um, And I grew up, on the West coast, which is very different from out here. Now that I live out on the East coast, I see exactly what you're talking about. There's this huge like effort of presentation. Like, you know, we have family problems, but we don't talk about it kind of thing. Oh yeah. Huge like East coast classism, very old money, like old. I I was discussing with people like the difference between new and old money and all the crazy things. And like, even going back to the early 1900s, like Mrs. Astor's list of different people, you know, it just really wild stuff. But it's there. Yeah. And on the West coast, that isn't the case at all. You know, somebody like Travis Barker walks in with like a million tattoos and you can't assume like you cannot assume in California who that is or how much money they have. And it's been, I think that will be kind of the crypto shift, hopefully, mm-hmm. is that we have to stop 
doing that evaluation or at least let the guard down a little bit because that's... I hope so. I really do because I do think that there's like still a little bit of online posturing. And I think that that comes from the the data, datafication, I don't even know if you could really call it, of, of like, or just like, you know, how many followers do you have? How recognizable is your face? You know, if you do have a, a board ape, like, do you go to these events? Do you, you know, how do you display that in your profile? Because there's always going to be ways to display wealth in circles that know it. But the fact of the matter is that to have access to that is something that needs to change. The ability for people to access making any sort of money that would be, you know, life-changing. Because it's, I'm not talking about like, because I've met some pretty wild people in Washington, some really wild things. I'm talking like true billionaires, private jets, all that stuff. And like the type of money that I envision for regular family is just like, you know, normal life living money of being able to buy a house, being able to have a car, being able to have two kids if you want to have kids. You know, that kind of stuff is what I think that like. And for you to jump from somewhere in a space in America where you don't have any of that, whether it's a city or a country, it is so difficult to come out of a situation where you don't have any family who's a lawyer, you don't have any family who's a doctor, you don't have no access to a public library, you don't have a phone, you don't have a computer. I mean, you barely have food and water sometimes. You're worried about violence. You're worried about, you know, abuse in the home. Those sorts of things, they can't even get started to think about how you're going to get any foot in the door to be able to create a life in the future that is just what everyone deserves. Yeah, I, I agree that access is the hugest, hugest, the, <laughs> the biggest uh, issue. But the internet, I think Starlink also, you know, lowering the cost effective services. I know you yeah. have a um, attachment to Europe, so I'm sure you know that their internet system is like much more efficient and way less expensive than ours. Yeah. The access is open and... I mean, even during the pandemic, I mean, we had to like convert buses up in Maine as to like Wi-Fi hotspots because kids don't, I mean, like I was the first person I knew to have like internet and a computer because my dad was a nuclear engineer and he was like big into technologies. And when I was a little kid, I was the only one who knew how to type when we got to school. Like, you know, this is just not an average way that people are interacting with it. And I love that we can have technology now to be an equalizer and that kids have the, the opportunity to do what they want to with it because... It's going to change our lives. It's going to change all of our lives. Yes. Um, so this has been amazing. We've gone a little longer than I intended. But um, before we go, I wanted to ask, considering how lovely and eclectic your life path has been so far, what do you see yourself doing in five to 10 years? That's a very good question because there's, I see myself being an attorney. I love the law. I definitely want to make use of that. But I also really would love to just like host a TV show that's like part Anthony Bourdain and part Antiques Roadshow and like travel around to rural America and interview people who are like master quilt makers and have them tell me about their life and like learn how to do stuff like that. So I don't know, maybe I'll, we'll see what happens. At this point, I'm on like a, a one year to two year plan rather than a five to 10 year plan. And I know that I'm curious about a lot of things. I've been incredibly lucky to have the opportunities that I do and incredibly lucky to talk to people like you who are in these spheres and continue to give platforms to people who want to engage with this sort of future finance technology. And I don't know, I don't know how I'll be doing things, but I hope that I'm doing things that help other people's lives get easier and continue to improve. Well, I hope you pursue crypto regulation, um, working towards a better and positive outcome for the space, some clarity, because we do need people like you. 
Thank you. I appreciate it. I definitely want to re- remain in the tech crypto sphere because it's just too cool. It's too cool to say no to, right? It's too good. And if, like you could have your name on something, like instead of the Howie test, it could be like the, oh, the crypto regulation. The Tucci test. That's actually <laughs> finally get alliterative right there. You know, who knows? Who knows, man? We'll take it one day at a time, but I'm just curious to see how this all goes. And I really appreciate you having me on. It was so fun talking to you. Yeah. No, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I will let you know when this episode's coming out. And then uh, I will also tell everybody where to find you and your socials if they would like Perfect. to follow you. Perfect. That's all for this week's episode of the OXOX podcast featuring Katie Tucci. I hope you enjoyed doing Web3 with love. And if you would like to hear more episodes in the future, please hit the subscribe button. Thanks.